Spartacus' Daughter, The Life and Struggles of Rosa Luxemburg, a podcast by Karol Kulewski. Episode 7. More Letters to Leo A year later, March 1895, Rosa is back in Paris for more work on Srevarobanitsa. Things haven't changed an awful lot. She's still surrounded by the same unhelpful people, still exhausted, but she won't give up. Still, she's more concerned about Leo's welfare than her own. The hard work she's been putting into Splavarabonitsa is, however, starting to pay off. That, surely, must be a comfort to her. But what transpires most from the two letters I'm going to read today is her love for Leo, which remains as strong as ever. Paris, 21st of March, 1895, Thursday evening. My dearest only beloved Zodio, finally I'm taking a break. I'm terribly exhausted both physically and spiritually. For the first time since my arrival, I'm finally alone. At this moment, I have my own place to live and I've moved in. I have a charming room. It's almost like a small salon. And my dream is that you'll come here and we can both be here together. You can get a room in the same house. It's near the Valskis and very far from the library. But over there, one can't even think of getting a room for less than 50 to 75 francs. For that reason, it's better to travel back and forth once a day on the streetcar. I make the trip early. I have lunch there, not far from the library, at a private home of some poor social democrats. And Adolf Varsky only eats there. Then I go back to the library and in the evening travel home. The library is open now from 9 to 5. But never mind about these particulars of daily life. My golden one, my only one. In my thoughts I embrace you and rest my head on your chest with my eyes closed to get some rest. I am so exhausted. And what about you, way off there, poor thing? No sooner were you free of us than you had to start work on your pamphlet. How little time you have. Or is the work going well for you? You little monkey, I know you. Now you'll answer me the same way, with an intimate letter. And as soon as I start writing dryly, you'll be sure to do likewise. You little monkey, you have to imitate me in everything. You never have a mood of your own except when you're furiously raging and then you're unbearable. But are you in my situation? Are your impressions and perceptions the same as mine? What do you imitate me for? 
Sometimes it really seems to me that you're like a piece of wood. It was said once, or it actually happened, that you loved me and now you're trying to act as if that was so, that you love me. But from within yourself, you never feel an active impulse in this direction. Oh, you're horrible and I don't like you. You know, if you were here, you'd really be happy. Here for the first time, one can get a sense of the importance of Sprava Robonitsa. Adolf tells me that recently it's made more of an impression than it ever has before. The social patriots are constantly feeling under pressure because of it, and they wait with trepidation for the appearance of each new issue. Those were Adolf's words. Why is that? I asked him in order to find out more. Well, they're afraid of such articles as Na Congress and Podbat. Luxembourg is referring to her 12-page supplement in Polish to Sprawa Robotnica in July-August 1894, entitled Under the Whip of Public Opinion, which consisted entirely of articles and brief items directed against the PPS. I write you something about myself, that I'm tired or that I have a yearning, etc. Ah, you gold, I have some very fearsome intentions for you, you know? Really, while I've been here, I've been letting it run through my head a little, the question of our relationship, and when I return, I'm going to take you in my clothes so sharply that it will make you squeal, you'll see. I will terrorize you completely. You will have to submit. You will have to give in and bow down. That is the condition for our living together further. I must break you and grind the sharp edges off your horns. Or else I can't continue with you. You are a bad-tempered person and now within myself I am as sure of that as the sun is in the sky after having thought about your entire spiritual physiognomy. And I'll smother this rage and fury that you have in yourself as sure as I'm alive. Such weeds can't be allowed to get in among the cabbages. I have the right to do this because I'm ten times better than you and I quite consciously condemn this very salient aspect of your character. I'm not going to terrorize you without any mercy until you become gentle and begin to feel and conduct yourself toward other people as any ordinary good person would. At one and the same time, I feel a boundless love for you and an implacable strictness toward the failings in your character. Therefore, not well, get a hold of yourself because I'm already standing here with the carpet beater in my hand, and as soon as I arrive I'm going to start beating the dust out of you. Undoubtedly there's a lot in the words above that you don't understand, but I'll explain it to you after I get back. And now, as the beginning of my reign of terror, think about it, be good. Write kind and gentle letters, and don't address me with the formal you, which is a tactless piece of crudity on your part. Don't pick apart my letters, be humble, and tell me you love me without being afraid that you will be demeaning yourself if, say, just for today you give me three pennies more than I give you. Don't be afraid and don't be ashamed to express your feelings for me if you still have them, because I will use no force on you in that regard. And don't have any anxiety that I may not accept them with the accustomed respect. Learn to kneel down in spirit a little and do it not only 
at those moments when, with open arms, I call to you, but also when I'm standing with my back to you. In a word, be more generous, more magnanimous, relate to your feelings in a more normal way. In the second letter I'm going to read today, Rosa is in Switzerland, although it's unclear from the letter where exactly in the country she is writing from. There's nothing in this letter about the cause, nothing at all. This is just a love letter, really. Switzerland, 16th of July, 1897. No, I can't go on working. The thought of you keeps distracting me. I must write you a few words. Dearest, most beloved, you are not with me now yet. My entire soul is filled with you and it embraces you. To you it will certainly seem monstrous, perhaps even comical, that I am writing you this letter when we live ten steps apart, see each other three times a day, and besides, I am your wife after all, so why all this romanticism? Writing a letter at night to your own husband. Oh, my golden one, let it seem comical to the whole world, only not to you. At least read this letter seriously and with your heart, with the same feeling that you read my letters back then in Geneva when I was not yet your wife, because I'm writing it with the same strong feelings as then, and my whole soul impels me towards you in exactly the same way, my eyes overflow with tears. At this point, no doubt, you smile and quote me. You know, nowadays, I cry over the tiniest trifle. Dear, dear, my love, do you know why I'm writing you this letter instead of saying all this to you in person? Because I don't know how. I'm not able to talk with you so freely about these things anymore. Right now, I'm as touchy and skittish as a hare. Your slightest gesture or inconsequential remark makes my heart shrink and seals my mouth. I can speak with you as openly as this, only if I feel surrounded by a warm, trusting atmosphere, and that tends to happen so rarely between us now. As you see, today I've been flooded with such strange and peculiar feelings, awakened in me by these couple of days of being alone and reflecting. I've had so many thoughts to share with you, but you were distracted, though cheerful, and you didn't feel you wanted anything physical. In other words, you thought that's all I was concerned about at that moment. That's precisely the difficulty I've been obsessed with at this moment. That hurt me so much, but you thought I was just feeling dissatisfied because you were in a hurry to set off on your trip. Perhaps I might not even have had the nerve to write this letter now, but a bit of feeling that you showed has given me courage. At our parting, you brought up something and gave me a whiff of the past. That past 
in memory of which every night before going to sleep, I almost choke among the pillows from my tears. My dear, my love, no doubt your eyes are already glancing around, impatiently searching. What in the world does she want? Do I myself know what I really want? I want to love you. I want the same gentle, trusting, ideal atmosphere to exist between us as existed back then. You, my dear, often understand me too superficially. You think I'm always sulking because you're going away or something like that. And you can't imagine that it hurts me deeply that for you our relationship is something totally external. Oh, don't say, my love, that I don't understand that it's not just an outward formality the way I think it is. I know I understand what it means. I understand be because I feel... Earlier, when you spoke with me about this, to me it was empty sound, sound without meaning, but now it is a hard reality. Oh, I have a very good sense of what this outward formality really is. I feel it when I see how gloomy you are, and without speaking, you busy yourself with something, any other concerns, or even with unpleasant things, and your look tells me, it's none of your affair, go man your own business. I feel it when I see how you, when we have quarrels on a bigger scale, take these impressions to heart and mold them over and you think about our relationship and you arrive at one or another conclusion and you quickly make some decision or other and in some way, in spite of everything, I am left behind and I can only ponder over it with my poor brain, wondering what and how you are thinking. I feel it after every time we are together, when you shove me aside afterwards and close yourself off in your work. I feel it in conclusion, if in my thoughts I review my whole past life and my whole future, in which I envision myself as a mannequin activated by some internal mechanism. My dear one, my love, I am not complaining, I am not asking for anything. All I want is that you not interpret any weeping on my part as just the scenes that women put on. Do I know what the situation is, after all? I am certainly very much to blame for it, perhaps the most to blame, for the fact that no warm and well-balanced relationship prevails between us. But what can I do? I don't know. I don't know how to behave. I can't get control over the way I am in our relationship. I don't know how to do it. I'm not capable of taking firm hold of the situation. I'm not capable of drawing certain conclusions. I'm not capable of taking a particular firm position in relation to you. At any moment I behave the way inspiration or impulse dictates. So much love and suffering have accumulated in my soul that I throw myself at you, throw my arms around your neck and your coolness pains me in tears at my soul and I hate you for it and I feel I could kill you. My golden one, after all, you are capable of reasoning and comprehending. You have always done that reasoned and comprehended. Both for you and for me, in our relationship. Why is it that now you don't have to do it together with me? Why do you leave me all by myself? Oh my God, I'm turning to you and appealing to you so much that maybe as a result. It's become true, and more and more often seems to me to be so, that perhaps you don't love me so much anymore, do you? Truly, truly, I feel that so often.
You now find everything about me so bad and hateful. You scarcely feel the need to spend time with me. Incidentally, do I even know what it is that drives me to these thoughts? I know only if I let my thoughts wander this way, if I imagine everything taken all together, then something tells me that you would be far happier. Now, if this didn't exist, that you would prefer to run off somewhere and be rid of the whole business. Oh, my love, I understand that completely. I see how little brightness there is for you in this relationship, how I wear on your nerves with these scenes, these tears, these trifles, even this lack of belief in your love. I know it, my golden one, and if I think about it, then I would prefer to be somewhere else with the devil, or best of all, not to exist. There's a thought that pains me so, that into your pure, proud, solitary life I have come crowding in with my old wife's tales, with my unbalanced self, with my disorderliness. And for what, for what, for the devil? Oh my God. What's the use of talking about it? It's pointless. And again, my dear, you will ask, what is it, after all, that you want? I want nothing, nothing, my precious. Only that you should know that I, even with the personality I have, I'm not tormenting you so blindly and unfeelingly. I want you to know that I weep often and bitterly because of this, and once again, I don't understand it, I don't know how to behave or what I should do to help myself. Sometimes I think it would be best to see you as seldom as possible. At other times, I pop up in good spirits again and would like to forget it all and throw myself in your arms and cry my heart out. But then this cursed thought comes again and whispers to me, leave him in peace. He puts up with all of it only out of politeness, from wanting to be tactful. Then two or three small things immediately seem to confirm this thought, and hatred wells up in me, and I'd like to torment you, to bite you, to show you that I don't need your love, that I too would be ready to do without you. Then again, I torment myself and grieve all alone, and so it goes endlessly in a vicious circle. How much drama, right? It's boring, the same thing over and over. But to me, it's as though I haven't said even one-tenth of what I wanted to say. Well, goodbye. It's as though I'm already regretting that I wrote this. Maybe you'll get angry, maybe you'll laugh. Oh no, don't laugh. Only you, my beloved, can offer welcome to the ghost as you once did. Zodio. Zodio. Next time we're going to take a little detour and talk about Rose's views on the French socialists, whom she would meet at meetings of the international. Jean Jaurès, in particular, a figurehead of the Second International, whom Rosa met on many occasions at congresses of the International. Although the two disagreed on many issues, he was a reformist who thought the revolution was not going to happen any time soon. There was mutual respect between them.